I want you to really be conscious of the context of all the messages that I'm sharing lately and, and into the future because they're building, you know, kind of precept upon precept unto your um, ability to recognize, understand, receive, and walk in the gospel, but also your ability to preach the gospel that's the gospel and to give it proper context so that when people come into relationship with God or choose not to, they clearly understand and, and, they, and they recognize um, kind of the bigger picture of God and mankind and all of creation and the gospel and how it all fits together so that when they come into a relationship with God, that it'll be an excellent relationship, not a compromised uh, or misunderstood relationship. So this is for you, for you, because um, if you're like me, and I'm not putting criticism on anybody, I'm just telling you, when I came into my relationship with God, it wasn't from a place of having a good understanding. It started with God loves you, he wants to bless you. And from my carnal perspective, I could see love and blessing in a certain way, but, but it wasn't in the way that the Bible teaches me to receive God. So it's for you, for you, but it's also for you, for you, as you honor God in your commission, right? Because each and every one of us that actually is born again and indwelt by God's spirit is in commission with Christ. He said that he's sending us, and he said, lo, he will be with us always. So it's a commission. It's the head directing the body to go about and bring forth the kingdom into this lost world. So it's for you, for you, for your personal relationship with God, but it's for you, for you in your relationship with God as he's commissioned you and me to go about bringing forth his kingdom in this world so that we'll be excellent in doing that. Amen? Okay. Um, why is the gospel important? Acts seventeen thirty through 31. Therefore, having overlooked at times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So the world is going to be judged. That day is coming. It's sooner today than it was yesterday. There's no less urgency than there ever has been. We have to go and share the gospel because there's coming a time when God is going to judge the world through a man whom he's appointed. That man is the Lord, the man Christ Jesus, who he raised from the dead in righteousness. So it's important that we share the gospel because there's people that have not heard it. And they're in judgment until they receive the Son of God. What is the gospel? Romans 1.16 says, uh, Paul speaking, the apostle, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The Greek would be anybody who's not a Jew in that context. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And the gospel is the gospel. It is specific. It isn't... It isn't fluffy and soft around the edges with a, with a hard center. It is the gospel. It has specific content. It doesn't have extra content. It doesn't have less content. When the gospel is subtracted from, what's left isn't the gospel anymore, and it has no power to save. When the gospel is added to, what you have now with the gospel plus the addition is no longer the gospel, and it does not have the power to save. The gospel is the gospel. It can't be diddled with. It has to be what it is in the scriptures. Okay, so context matters to the gospel. So the, not last week, because I didn't preach last week, but the week before um, was context. This week is context. Ultimately, we'll get to the specifics of the gospel, but the gospel without context is not the best way to present the gospel. So um, 
kind of gospel in context starts with God. It continues with man's relationship to God. It then speaks to sin, rebellion, and separation from God. It speaks to grace. It speaks to a savior, and it ultimately speaks to salvation. So right now, we're establishing context. If somebody said, hey, aren't you one of those Jesus followers? And you said, yes, you know, tell me about it. You said, well, brother, if you just pray this prayer with me, you can be a Jesus follower too. And you let them in a prayer, and somehow maybe they actually connected to the gospel in this prayer. It would be so out of context that their relationship with God would be started off in such a way that it's going to be hindered right out of the gate. Context is really important. So the first order of context is God. And that was the two weeks ago message. It's like, okay, I'm going to share with you the gospel. The gospel is this thing that's offered to you by God. And God is specific. He's not any God. He's, some, he's not some imaginary God. He's not an idol God that you make in your mind. He is the God of the Hebrew and the Christian scriptures. That's the God that we're talking about. We're not talking about Allah. We're not talking about Muhammad. We're not talking about any other God that any person serves the faith that we have that brings us into relationship and, and offers us eternal life sources in this God. So if somebody says, well, there's lots of gods and you know they all have their own way of salvation, that's not what we believe. So the gospel starts with understanding God. The next place the gospel goes in context is what is my relationship with God? And that's what I want to share with you today. Okay, so... Um, Part of the context of the gospel that I, I, I probably should reiterate is it's very important as we're going through this teaching that we don't see the gospel through our eyes. We have to see the gospel through God's eyes. Because if we see the gospel and the context with us as the center of the whole thing, then we get a, um, a corrupted perspective potentially. If we can pull ourselves away, because there's things that in our, in our flesh, and, and when we speak the gospel, we're going to be speaking it to fleshly people, right? They're not in the spirit yet. They're, they could be touched by the anointing so that they could receive the gospel, but they are, they are carnal people hearing the gospel. And, and there are things of the gospel, it's like, well, it doesn't seem like the, the crime fits the punishment, but it has to be seen from God's perspective. And then you can start to understand that, that the punishment does actually fit the crime. Okay, um... Let's start with just a quick conversation about relationships. Not all relationships are the same. You could look at relationships maybe in the, in the context of horizontal relationships and vertical relationships, and they're different. The, the, uh, the vertical relationship is governed differently by the participants of that relationship than the horizontal relationship is governed by the participants of that relationship. Examples, um, Mike Pickover and I, have a relationship. It's a horizontal relationship. It is not a vertical relationship. Um, uh, Tanya Grace and I have a relationship. It's not a horizontal relationship. It's a vertical relationship. My relationship with Tanya Grace is governed by different rules than my relationship with Mike Pickover is governed by. My relationship um, with God is not a horizontal relationship. It's not a peer relationship. It's a vertical relationship, Okay. All right, so um, the different types of relationships are governed differently, and even the expression of love in those relationships can be or should be expressed differently. An example of um, a vertical relationship, in Ephesians 6.1, the Bible says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. The Bible doesn't say anywhere, parents obey your children, right? The, the relationship between a parent and a child is uh, 
very much defined in obedience. And anybody, I don't know so much for women because I never had that experience, but for a man, what I've come to learn is when my children relate to me, not like we're peers, like, you know, like, hey, bud, you know, we're not peers. I'm your father and you're my daughter. I'm your father and you're my son. And when they respect me in that relationship that's vertically, I feel great honor and great satisfaction in the relationship. And you've heard people teach that, you know, your kids might say they don't want your discipline and they don't want your rules and your controls, but really they do because they find safety in you acting like a parent and not like their pal. Right? Now, I'm not saying you can't be friends with your kids, but I'm saying the ultimate establishment of relationship is not horizontal with your children. And, and when, when I say, you know, child, um, would you clean the kitchen? And child says, well, it's not my week. It's the other child's week. I say, I know, but I'm just asking you to take care of it. And they say, yes, Dad. I am telling you, I feel so loved and so honored because they didn't choose to argue with me about their rights. They just chose to respect me as their father and do what I asked them to do. So a great example of a scripture that that plays to this is the one I read you. Children, honor your parents because that's right with the Lord. An example of a horizontal relationship, how it would be governed, is Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine, where he speaks of you know the, the two greatest commandments, and he says the second is like it: you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So, so in a parallel or a horizontal relationship, I'm not superior. If anything, when I'm really doing it great, I'm, I'm inferior because I'm doing like what Teresa said in Philippians. I'm, I'm considering others more highly than myself. But a person who's trying to figure out how do I live in a horizontal relationship like Mike, in, Mike Pick and me, it should be governed by loving as yourself. That's an example of a scripture that teaches us how a horizontal relationship would be governed. The ultimate vertical example is our relationship with God, right? I mean, the, the, the superior A number one top vertical relationship. Nobody has a horizontal, no human being person has a horizontal relationship with God. It's always a vertical relationship. And God, through Jesus, Jesus being always man and always God, he spoke these things. Um, John chapter 14, I'll read verse 15 and then I'll read verse 24. He says in verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So Jesus is teaching us the way that you you operate, the way that love is governed in this relationship is you be obedient to me. And, and if you read John 14 and 15, it's awesome because Jesus says, listen, this is how my relationship with my father is established. He loves me because I do what he's told me to do. And then he says from the other perspective in 1424, he who does not love me does not keep my words and the word which you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. So he says, if you love me, if you want to express love to me in, in, in the way our relationship is established, you'll do what I tell you to do. You'll obey my commands. And then he says from the opposite perspective, if you don't do what I ask you to do, you don't love me. So this one is established in obedience. This one is established in love your neighbor as yourself. And I, I know somebody said this last week. I thought, wow, that just plays right into what you know I'm going to preach. And now I can't remember who it was. So it's not my original thought, but the place where relationships become perfect is at the intersection of the horizontal relationship and the vertical relationship. If a person who is in a vertical relationship understands that relationship and loves God the way it's prescribed, 
then all of this can be perfect. If a person understands horizontal relationships, then they love their neighbor as themselves, they actually are satisfying the first and primary condition of this one. If you love me, you'll do what I command you. And a new command I give you, love each other. So the perfect expression of relationships in God's creation is found at the cross. Amen. Okay. All right. If I told you that your relationship with God is based in law, how would you respond? Like, ah, I'm not under law. Would that seem weird to you? Because it is. Whether or you're saved or born again or you're not, your relationship, between any relationship between any human being and God is governed by law. Now, he's careful not to say the law, but law. And let me show you how that's true. It's either one or the other of these, and they're shown in Romans 8, 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So you live in relationship to God relative to one of those two laws. If you're not saved, if you're not born again, then you live under the law of sin and death. The soul that sins must die, right? If you sin, you die. That's the law that you relate to God under. Once you did a sin which, you know, you're born in sin, but let's just say you're not. Once you did a sin and everybody did a sin, then your relationship is broken because you had to die because that's the law, that's the relational law that you lived under with God. But if you've come through the grace of God and your faith in Christ Jesus to this place of born again and saved, then you don't live under the... the um, the constraints of the law of sin and death, you live under the law of life in the, sorry, I have to read this one again, of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And it has set you free from this other one. Now, if you live under the law of sin and death, the only way to have relationship with God is to have righteousness. And that righteousness can't be like, the best righteousness of any human being, it has to be the same righteousness that God himself possesses. So if you live under the law of sin and death and you're going to have relationship with God, what righteousness must you be? It would be your righteousness. You, you would require self-righteousness to have a relationship with God. But nobody is self-righteous in themselves. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Who, oh, where's the scripture? It says, that um, there, no, there's no not one that's righteous. There is no righteous human being. Therefore, anybody living under the law of sin and death is unrighteous and cannot have relationship with God. Because in their sin, remember, relationship vertical, if you love me, you'll obey me. In their sin, they would have demonstrated that they don't love God. And somebody might say, well, gosh, you know, I love God, but I still sin. It's like, well, you know, you didn't love God. And because you demonstrated in that moment that you didn't love God, you've separated yourself from him. And that is absolutely true, except for the person who lives under the law, sorry, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Because the person who lives under the constraints of that law can sin and not demonstrate that they hate God. 
and still maintain relationship with God because in this legal system, he said, if you confess your sins, matter of fact, he says, if you say you have no sin, you lie and you make God a liar. But if you confess your sin, God is, thank you, faithful and just or faithful and righteous, if your translation is New American Standard, to forgive your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And and it's important that you get this because what are we talking about? Man's relationship to God. A person who's not saved and who's going to hear the gospel has to understand that they have no relationship with God, that their relationship is governed by the law of sin and death. And because of their sin, they have died to God, right? If you look in John 3, after, you know, for God so loved the world, he said that the son didn't come to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He goes on to say that the world is already judged because they have not believed in the name of God's only begotten. Or, you know, that's a paraphrase, but it's close. The point is, when you talk to somebody about receiving Jesus in a saving way, you are talking to a dead person because their relationship with God, with God is governed by the law of sin and death. You're giving them the opportunity to change how they relate to God in the Holy Spirit by faith through God's grace. Amen? Okay. All right. Let me just go back. And and this, you know, you don't have to remember all this to say. I just want you to understand it. I I mentioned self-righteousness, right? How is it that I can have relationship with God? Well, I've never sinned and I'm never going to sin. I am as righteous as God in myself. Well, okay, good luck with that because you're not. But, you know, if you want to deceive yourself, whatever. If I live in that law, I require that righteousness, which I don't have. But if I live in this one, in the Holy Spirit, I am perfectly righteous before God. Where is my righteousness? It's not my own because I don't have any. It's in Christ Jesus. It is, Teresa told me, I make sure I explain this word. It is an imputed righteousness, right? So, so the transaction that happens at the moment of salvation is that the person's sin debt that they owe to God, that they cannot pay, is imputed to Jesus. And his righteousness, which is the very righteousness of God, is imputed to them. So that's why when somebody says to a Christian, it's like, oh, you just think you're so good. You're so self-righteous. It's like a Christian that understands, says, no, (laughs) the only righteousness that I have is, is that righteousness in which I'm seen in Christ Jesus. I have no righteousness before God. If you ask me about sin and I tell you about sin, it's not an issue of me standing above you in my righteousness and you below me in your filth. It's me recognizing that I don't have any place but filth except that God in his goodness imputed to me the righteousness of Jesus Christ so that I could then live under this legal system and not that legal system. So the only exception to person having relationship and having a sin is the person who lives under the righteousness of Christ. And, and here's what you've got to get. And you don't have to share it this way, but, but if you understand it, you'll speak it a certain way. Things change when you gain that righteousness. I'll give you three quick scriptures. I won't go into them, but I'll just give them to you. But as many as received him, this is uh, John chapter 1, but as many as received him, Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
That's why Jesus says to Nicodemus, he says, unless that you're born again, you can't see the kingdom. It's not possible because you're dead. You can't get in the kingdom. You have to be born again of God. And then what happens is he gives you the right to be his child, to call him father. The second one is Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, therefore you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. See, God doesn't deal with slaves the way he deals with sons. And that's why you can have that, I don't even want to call it an opportunity, but you can stumble into a sin as a son and repent from it and confess it and be cleansed of all unrighteousness And you can't as a slave. You're a slave to the legal system that you're under, the law of sin and death. And then the final one is this, and I don't want you to get gummed up right now in discipline. It's not about discipline. It is, but it's not for this conversation. Hebrews 12, 7, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? The issue is that he deals with you differently when you live under this system than when you live under that system, okay? So it's very important to understand that when you're presenting the gospel to somebody, they gotta know that not everybody is, a, is the children of God. They, people say that casually, oh, we're all God's children. No, we're all God's creation. We're all made in God's image. But only those who choose to receive the grace that God gives by faith in his son have the right to be called children of God. And everything changes when you become a son or a daughter versus a slave living under the law of sin and death. It's important to understand the relationship between God and mankind to to look at the narrative of creation. So I'm going to just read this to you, and then I'll try not to comment on it too much. Genesis 1, chapter 26 through 30. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image, and in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And, the, and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every, glee, every green plant for food. And it was so. So God is establishing relationship. He's establishing, uh, ordaining the economy of the earth and man's place in that economy, okay? All right, then Genesis chapter 2, verses 7 through 9, and then I'm going to just skip a few and jump right to 15 through 17. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, 
And there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground, the Lord caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. The Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. So in this part of the the creation narrative, we, we see that God creates man Adam, the word Adam isn't so much a name like, you know, if he had a, went to a conference, he'd wear a little badge that said his name is Adam. Adam is the Hebrew word for man, for mankind, all right? And then uh, Adam was he, was, he had form, but he had no life, and God breathed, he breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life. And, and it's interesting that the, the Holy Spirit is, the word that's translated spirit is pneuma. It's the same word for wind. It's the same word for breath. So, so literally the breath of God is what brought life into Adam. And then from Adam, he created Eve. And then he placed them in the garden. He gave them one command. Don't eat from this one tree. Everything else is yours. All of this belongs to you. Enjoy it. Take care of it. But not this one tree. So what happened? God created mankind. So he established in that moment a vertical relationship, creator and created. He provided everything that man would need. He established in that one command the parameters of their relationship. Then the question comes, all right, you know, if God kind of knew the beginning from the end and everything from the middle, why in the world did he put a situation in place where man could actually separate himself from God? And the answer is because God's nature is love, right? In, in 1 John, you read that God is love. All love comes from God. His nature is love. Love requires choice. It's really important that we understand this. If he had created man with no opportunity to choose then man couldn't actually express love towards God. Remember how God said he receives love in a vertical relationship? If you love me, you'll obey me. If you don't obey me, you don't love me. So he had to create some dynamic that would allow man to be able to express his love towards God. That was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden. It had to be there. Otherwise, there couldn't be any expression of love between man to his creator. Finally, the, the statement that says that, that the day that you eat from that tree, you will surely die. Now, surely die is literal, physical death, and surely die is spiritual death, separation from God. Had Adam and Eve not eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would have never experienced physical death. There would have been no need for us to ultimately, in Christ Jesus, be born again, still have to die, but be resurrected with resurrection bodies because they would have had perfect bodies. There would have been no corruption in themselves that caused them to ultimately fade away and die and to be separated from God. Sin is corruption. It corrupted them and it corrupted their relationship with God. See, a person needs to understand that. If they, if they don't think that they did anything wrong, then they don't have an understanding of their relationship with God. If they never even heard of God, they have a relationship with God. It's governed by the law of sin and death. He created them for love, and they chose not to love him. And they're like, oh, I didn't even know him. It's like, no, no, 
you did, and you chose not to love. But he loves you so much that he made an opportunity for you to, even though you've blown your righteousness, you have the opportunity to have his righteousness again. But I get ahead of myself. Okay, now, I wasn't going to read this, but I'm going to just read it real quick. This is the, this is the actual fall. Genesis chapter 3, 1 through 24. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, and he, the serpent, said to the woman, indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees in the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Man, that's the problem in the world right now, right? We all want to be God. We, we want to be God. We want to be worshipped. We want to make our own decisions. We want to do what feels good to us. We are corrupted. In our corrupted nature, we want to be God. That's why pride is, is when you put yourself above God. That's pride. That's what happened to Lucifer. That's what he's proposing to Eve right here. So you'll just, you'll be like God. You'll be a little God yourself. It's the biggest temptation. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. People have to understand, God did not reject mankind in their sin. Mankind, by his sin, rejected God. That's why you can't look at it from your human perspective as the, as the pot trying to explain to the pot maker, to the potter, what shape you ought to be. You're just clay. You're just a made thing formed together by the hands of God. Only reason you have life is because he breathed life into you. You have to see it from his perspective to understand that what you did is wrong, that you chose yourself over God. You demonstrated by your sin that you don't love God and that the situation that you exist in, eternally damned, is your doing, not his. Because he created and he made the environment and he set it up so that it could be successful, but he had to make Room for a fall, otherwise there's no room for you to express love. Okay, just a couple of uh, scriptures from the New Testament. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and 25. These will help us to see, again, this perspective. For the wrath of God, this is what you're saved from, by the way. When somebody gets saved, they're saved from the wrath of God. That's what Jesus drank in the cup, was the cup of the wrath of God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so they are without excuse. Nobody has an excuse. God is evident in his creation. You are aware of God in his creation. And, and the person who rejects God and his son, when they stand to be judged, are going to know it. They're not going to have an argument. They're going to be aware that they did know. Verse 21, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their f- foolish heart was darkened. 
professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That's the fall. God said this, I'm going to do that. Don't do that. He said you're going to die. Will he surely say you're going to die? I mean, he's just going to let you be like him. Wouldn't that be nice to be like God? I'm exchanging the creator, the creator for the created, and now I'm going to place myself as God. That's what happened. Romans chapter 2 now, verses 5 through 8. Oh, just read that one. Sorry. Oh, no, I didn't. Romans chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. So when when somebody who doesn't know Jesus sins, what they're doing is they're adding to their sin account. And the amount of wrath that they're going to experience is going to be uh, relative to the amount of sin, the amount of hate that they express towards God. So they're storing up for themselves wrath, storing up for themselves wrath. So you say to somebody, hey, listen, you know, it's, it's a sin what you're doing. My, I hate to use my brother as an example, but my own brother, you know, he, he lives with his girlfriend. And, and every day that they, they, they live in a way that only a husband and a wife should live, they're adding to the wrath that they're going to experience in eternity unless, unless they move out of this legal system into this legal system, in which case the cup of their wrath Jesus drank it at the cross for them so that their sin was imputed to him and his righteousness can be imputed to them. But if they don't change and nobody is guaranteed tomorrow, see, they're, 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 they're choosing darkness over light. They're making a conscious decision. If you said you're doing that and they said they're, they're not, they are. That's the truth. It's evident because God has written his laws in our hearts and we're not unaware of the truth. Okay, what a person must understand is this. I'm summarizing now. They are the creature, not the creator. This is not a horizontal relationship. By choosing their own way, they have chosen themselves as God and rejected him in that relational role. Seems harsh, but this is the truth. As such, their choice, their choice, God has given them what they chose and the fruit or consequences of their choice. Their issue with God is not God's choosing, but theirs, because God as creator, or God as creator, establishes relationship with creation. You build, uh, you go to pottery class, and you create a little thing, and you put the colors on it, and stick it in the oven, and it comes out. You decide where that thing sits in your house, right? You put it on the shelf in the most honored place in your house. You could put it under the sink, behind the door, in the cabinet. You get to decide because you're the creator. The pot doesn't get a vote in that thing. God as creator establishes relationship with creation. This relationship must exist in love. Love requires obedience. Man doesn't love God, demonstrated by his disobedience. Therefore, man has chosen himself over God. God, on the other hand, chose to create man. 
chose to be in a love relationship with man, provided everything necessary, necessary for that relationship to flourish, including the opportunity for it to fail because love without choice is not love. Why is all that important as context to the gospel? Because no true or sincere repentance can come without coming to grips with the person's actual situation or relationship with God. If they say, and oh, this is so common, you know, if you died today, would you go to heaven or hell? Well, I'd go to heaven. Well, how do you know? Because I'm a good person. They're, they're already deceived because they're not a good person. They might be a good person based upon you or me, but they're not a good person based upon the very righteousness and holiness of God, which is the standard that's required in that vertical relationship. It's so important for a person. God, God says that he loves a contrite and a broken heart. Why? Because that person will humble themselves before him and love him in the way that the Bible prescribes. It's so important if you're going to share the gospel with somebody that, that you give them the context of understanding that this isn't a mean God who's trying to send you to hell. This is a loving and awesome God who wants you to be with him, but he gives you choice. And you can't be the center of that conversation. He is the center of that conversation. And if you want to put yourself as the center person of creation, you can never humble yourself before God to receive salvation in Christ Jesus. So at this point, hopefully somebody is starting to understand and starting to feel the, the guilt and the weight of their sin. Now, it, it seems all dark at this point, but remember, at this point in the sharing of the context of the gospel, they really, the, 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 the second law was for you. But at this point in the conversation, it's for them. But there's two laws, not one. And if they choose to humble themselves before God in the way that he's offered them to be reconciled unto relationship with him, they can live under the second law. And, and this, is the, this is the scripture, if you expand it, right? I read you, I, I think it was Romans 8, 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of the spirit of death. But if you read verse 1 and verse 2 together, it says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. But we don't get to choose how to move from this one to this one. God says, I'm going to offer you life. It's in my son. You have turned away from me. You've hated me and you've rejected me. But there is no condemnation condemnation for those who are found in Christ Jesus. Because this law has taken them out of that law. I don't know how you heard the gospel. I don't know what the context of the gospel was when you heard it. But it's important that people understand. Because if you just give them the wrath of God without the love of God, then they're just going to see God from this way. If you just give them the love of God without seeing the wrath of God, then they're never going to understand the depth that they need to repent from in order to truly walk the way that these words are coming out how God wants us to see him, but how we have to live with him because he's established the economy of life.